Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here via Zoom because the pandemic is still a real thing, uh, here with... Keith Benjamin, the trumpet professor at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Um, he's been there for a, a, quite some time now, I feel like. Um, as long as I've known your name, you've been uh, attached to that institution. And so um, through my travels, I've gone through Kansas City and um, heard a lot about him from his students, but it's nice to actually get to sit down and get to know him a little bit myself. And so first of all, Keith, I really appreciate you being willing to take your time and, and chat with me. Thank you very much. It's uh, an honor to be had, as they say, and all of those people that you've talked to about me have told you nothing but lies. <laughs> I'm just going to get that out of the way first. Seriously, thanks a lot. I, I, I appreciate this. This is yeah. going to be fun. No, I'm, I mean, it's, it's good. I, I feel that um, this, this pandemic has brought me a finally, I used to want to just only do things in person, keep it, that would be keep it as clean as possible. And um to, to sort of have relaxed a little bit has allowed me to reach out, reach out to some people I've really wanted to reach out to that I would normally have to travel to do so. This is awesome. Um, I think, as with most of these interviews, starting with just going as far back as you feel relevant to sort of give some history, to ground us in about where you've been, things that you've done, so uh, we can build upon that uh, later and, um, you know, perspective changes and stuff like that. So okay. uh, you could go back as, to as far as undergrad or, you know, like grade school band, if there's like a good story, whatever you want to do, just take us wherever you want to go. All right. Well, the story that I often tell is that I grew up on a farm in the middle of absolutely nowhere in Northwest Iowa, but I was lucky enough to have both uh, of my siblings were musicians and my dad was a really fine brass player, played all the instruments. And uh, our entertainment when I was a kid on Sunday nights was to get together and play from the March and Swing books with all five of us playing instruments. And that's what I sort of grew up watching. And I was five when I picked up my dad's old Busher cornet and kind of like decided right then that that's what I was going to do the rest of my life, as much as you can if you're five years old. But, yeah, right. Um, so I, I, I started pretty young. I mean, past that, I was just kind of your normal dorky fifth grader in fifth grade band with a band director trying to herd cats and um, I actually did practice because my my parents kind of made me practice every day and they didn't really have to because I always liked to play. But I remember the little practice forms that the Mr. Redman, our band director, would send home and I had to practice 20 minutes a day when I was in elementary school. And I had to fill in the little circle that said I did and then my mom would sign it. Um, and it just always felt like this is something so cool that I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think pretty much from the time I was in junior high, everybody around me knew me as that's Keith, he's the trumpet player. And mm. it was just sort of what I was going to do. Literally tiny school. There were 23 people in my graduating class from high school. Um, but our high school jazz band was pretty good for a bunch of farm kids. And, you know, we would win all the competitions we went to and uh, one of my biggest disappointments my senior year is that we did not win the Iowa State Jazz Competition for Level C schools. I still have nightmares about that. 
<laughs> but but seriously, it was really a lot of fun. And we we'd go to these competitions and we'd play. And then we would just like run around like a bunch of idiots. We didn't go and listen to every other band. And I remember running around with these little Star Trek disc shooters and just basically just terrorizing everybody with two or three of these buddies of mine from high school. The sort of stuff that we could never do now because we were shooting guns at each other right, in the right. school. But, but it was like, you know, that was 1875 or whatever. So it was a different story. Um, and then... Uh, you know, you get to the end of high school and you sort of look around and you try to think of what you're going to do. And I didn't really think very much. I just went to Morningside College, which is uh, where my brother and my sister had both gone to get their music education degrees. And um, to jump ahead a ways, when my parents moved off the farm, literally, uh, when I was in grad school, I had to go through all my stuff in the house, uh, which was like my least favorite thing to do. But in the bottom of my dresser drawer in the room that I grew up, I found this cardboard box that was full of letters from all these other schools all over the country that they'd sent to me in 1977 and 1978. You know, from Eastman and Northwestern and North Texas and all these other schools. I hadn't even ever opened any of them. But they were they were like recruiting letters that I just threw in a box. I didn't even look at any of them. <laughs> so... That's kind of an image right there of how I've gone through my whole life is just sort of obliviously moving ahead. And, uh, you know, went to this small school in uh, Western Iowa in Sioux City called Morningside College. And again, it was just kind of this funny spike and anomalous group of people that were at this place that a bunch of us are still in the music business. We talked a little bit before this whole thing started about Jay Evans and mm -hmm. Jay was my roommate for three years and, and it was three of the funniest years of my entire life. Seriously. <laughs> um, at the end of my music education degree, pretty much about two weeks into um, full-time student teaching, I came to the realization that I really did not have the personality that you need to be a band director. I just couldn't do it. I was um, student teaching with, with uh, Larry Kaiser, who his two sons are sort of more famous than Larry. So I gave Ryan Kaiser his very first trumpet lesson. That's probably my biggest claim to fame right I was there. Say, that's quite the thing it to was, say. It was pretty cool because he was seven years old and he was literally playing high Fs above the staff already as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> so it wasn't so much a lesson as it was me listening to him play with my jaw hanging open. But, sure. Um, so I got to the end of that and I, and I decided that I was going to try to not teach, but maybe have a, and a shot at a performing career and auditioned for some master's programs and got accepted at a few and went to the University of Northern Iowa where I met my first really, really important mentor. I shouldn't say my first mentor. Gary Slechta was my teacher at Morningside. And what he did for me was Gary taught me how to be a lead trumpet player and a commercial player and how to sight read and how to play styles. And um, he was really, really good at that. And then uh, Keith basically heard me play and sort of sighed and said, well, we need to fix what you sound like because I sounded like a lead trumpet player. And that was about all I could do at the time. So Keith, with, with, uh, with infinite patience and care and more patience and some more patience, it changed my sound to be something more appropriate for the classical side of the fence and basically just taught me about 
more efficient production stuff. I mean, he was a master at that. So, I mean, I was at this point, I was really two for two because I had studied with two really amazing teachers. Uh, and then once again, at the end of my master's degree, I kind of looked up like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I auditioned for some schools again to sort of put off being an adult and got in some of the same places and got accepted at Eastman. Um, and at that point, I was like, you know, I, I really think I want to do this. I finally kind of decided that I was going to settle down and start practicing. So um, I drove out to Rochester, New York, and my little Datsun B210GX with my entire, you know, life's possessions driving across the United States as a terrified 23-year-old Iowa boy and, you know, pulled into Rochester, New York, which at the time was kind of a rust-built, uh, <laughs> pretty depressed and depressing city to be in. I, I pulled into town on a Sunday afternoon and I pulled up in front of the Eastman building on Gibbs street and just kind of sat there with my mouth hanging open and like, what the, <laughs> what the heck am I doing here? Yeah. And, and, uh, found a tiny apartment with hot and cold running mice that was close to campus and, uh, settled in to try to be a doctoral student. And I was so unprepared for that. It's a little breathtaking to think back on. Uh, I was studying with Charlie Geyer. So again, three for three, Charlie was an astonishing teacher. And uh, about two thirds of the way through that first semester, I was really quite literally starving. I didn't have enough money for food. And I mean, about the only thing that was keeping me going through most of the weeks is I was occasionally house sitting for Barb and Charlie, taking care of their horses and their cats. And they were generous enough to like say, you know, just eat whatever you want. So I would kind of eat them out of house and home over the course of a weekend. And then that's what I would live on for the week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, it was the, the story I love to tell that's a true story is I was uh, the last one out of the practice room in the building every every day. And I would go through all the practice rooms and look in the trash cans for empty pop cans, empty soda cans. Because there was a machine down in the coffee shop that you could feed these pop cans to for a nickel. And pretty much what I would do is I would hope I would get enough empty Coke cans to feed to this machine that I could buy a can of Wegmans uh, condensed tomato soup. And that's what I would eat the next day. And that's kind of how it was that first semester. And I I just kind of ran out of gas in one lesson. I And I just turned to Charlie and I said to him that I just, I'm starving to death. I don't have any money. And I, I like, I don't know what to do. And I said, I don't want to leave, but I just, I, I can't survive like this. And he just looked at me and said, why don't you go home for a while? And I remember thinking, I mean, I actually think I probably said this to him. He was like, what? I can do that? You know, <laughs> I'm a student. I can't go. And he's like, no, no, just take some time off. Go, go back to Iowa and, you know, put some money in the bank spend a lot of time practicing and then come back when you can actually afford to do this. And I felt like I'd gotten out of prison. Mm. Uh, so I did that. I left after a semester and I moved back to Iowa and did what he said. I did a, a, a lot of gigging and a lot of practicing and taught a bunch of private students and did some of the most appalling part-time jobs that you could imagine. And, you know, the whole, I actually was, I'm sorry to admit this to everybody, but I was an Amway salesman for like two days uh, that didn't work out and I you know, delivered newspapers and, and sort of did all the stuff that you do. 
and then I started to just figure out how to get more playing work. So after a couple of years of that, two and a half years exactly, I went back to Eastman way more sort of emotionally and financially prepared. And I finished that degree and uh, really kind of lent like full both barrels after the job that I've had since 1989 because I wanted to be back in the Midwest with a culture that I understood more completely. And I loved Kansas City. And this looked like a job that kind of had my name all over it. And I really went after this thing and got an interview and things went well enough that they hired me. And that's like, you know, 400 years ago to me now. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I guess my idea initially was I was going to be here for five, six years, and then I was going to move up to a bigger job. And I didn't really realize that I was already in a bigger job. I just didn't know it yet. And mm. the school has just, I mean, it, it's difficult to describe what's happened to this place in 31 years, but it's gone from kind of a mom and pop sort of small city institution to what I think is one of the better schools of music in the country right now. We're not really as well known as a lot of the bigger places, but I'm okay with that too. So I, this was my starter job and I didn't expect it to be my ender job, but I can't imagine ever wanting to teach anywhere else. Yeah. So it's just like all the, it's just like basically the, the theme of that whole story is that I just got incredibly lucky about 27 times in my career. So, yeah. Yeah, I've experienced that to an extent where I'm I'm looking trying to look so far forward to where I want to go that I forget that like the things that I have right now are pretty good, you know? Yeah. And um it's interesting to listen to you tell that story about your time at Eastman and it's just like that struggle but like why are you doing that struggle and like Charlie just letting you go? It's like I feel like there's a lot of people in a position of like this doesn't feel like it's the right time or the right place. Yeah. But we feel for some reason that we like can't like we have to do that because we just got to stay on that particular path. I think it's a little unfortunate this that that this country kind of assumes that we're all going to know what our career path is by the time we're three years old, you know. And I, I'm always talking to the students here about like, you know, I want you to make sure that this is one thousand percent what you want to do, and. I don't want to say I'm encouraging people to leave the program and taking a gap year or stuff, but I give them that option. Sometimes if it's clear that they're struggling for, for whatever financial or emotional or health reasons or whatever, we don't all have to be like done with our career path by the time we're 25. Right. I just think that this country's a little obsessed about that. And I have sent, people away for a couple of years and then they come back and they're like totally ready to go when they get back. Just yeah. like what happened to me. Yeah. I think you're right. We feel compelled to follow this path because it's what we're supposed to do. And I just think that uh, sometimes that's limiting. Do you have any other examples besides sort of encouraging or at least beginning the conversation of, is this what you want to do? I want to make sure you're a thousand percent. If you're not sure you can step away. Are there any other ways you try to help pe walk people through finding out this is a thousand percent what they want to do? I think that's kind of a conversation. I usually have like the first or second lesson that they have with me, whether it's, you know, previous to them being in school here or whether it's after they've started their degree, if I didn't have a chance to do it before, it's like, this is just a part of me figuring out what their commitment level is. And 
I mean, you and I know that the commitment level to this thing is 100% of whether you succeed or not, because you can have all the skills and talents and beautiful sound and musicianship you want, but if you're not willing to put time in, it doesn't matter. So I really think that's a pretty vital part of me figuring out a person is to try to figure out whether they're really totally into this ludicrous career choice that we've made. Because there's a lot of reasons that it's ludicrous, right? I mean, there's just all the uncertainty right now. I mean, people, you know, that go to college and and then they move out to New York and they're going to be working in Broadway. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're out of work for a year. You know, we all know those guys. And just the vagaries of the orchestral world. And I mean, you kind of have to be... I think you got to go into this with your eyes really, really open. And I guess I'm just trying to make sure everybody's eyes are really, really open about it. Yeah, I would agree. I think sometimes I've experienced teachers that don't necessarily want to reveal like all of the realities of what it is to do. (laughs) We kind of want to focus on the, this is awesome and we get to play music and we get to change lives. And it kind of drives us into feeling like I really want to do this, but without really knowing the full picture. And I feel like it can, like for some people it's fine, but for some people, myself included, it can be a very depressing reality when you first step into it and feel like this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I was just talking to a, a, a really, really talented high school student this morning about the orchestra world and how it's not this glorious shining, shining city on the hill that sometimes people make it out to be, right? So um, this is a kid that's going to have a performing career. He's incredibly gifted. He's also practicing five hours a day as a 15-year-old, which is insane. Um, I personally think he should probably be spending more time playing Xbox, but that's just me. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just, I, I think my balance is maybe almost sometimes too far in the other direction. I'm pretty pragmatic about it. And I love what I'm doing, but there's also... You know, there's there's a lot of things about it that are big struggles for everybody. And I'm as I think as I've gotten older, I'm I'm trying to be a lot more uh, upfront about the struggle part of the yeah equation. One of the one of the questions I feel like I've been asking a lot recently, and I feel like you hope maybe we'll have a, a, a interesting answer, or maybe <laughs> not. Maybe it'll be a normal answer. I don't know. It's just like why is this. Like, why, basically? Why do we do what we do if we have no guarantees? Like, a lot of times I feel we can say, I will practice five hours a day, but this idea that it will result in a job or it will result in this. But we don't have that guarantee. And so if we don't have that guarantee, what makes it worth it for you? What kinds of things do you feel like, whether it's holistically or career-wise, how do we justify the work if we can't guarantee outcome of result? Wow. Um that's a really, really difficult question to answer in any kind of curt or concise way. Sure. I, I think, I mean, there's going to be some cliches that I'm going to have to say because they're true. And that is you just have to have a like an undying passion for some element of what you're doing if you're a musician. And I do think that it's, it, you know, it comes from your soul, whatever that happens to mean to you. And it's definitely still part of my person that I get to be a trumpet player. And there's so many cool things that we get to do that sometimes the balance between the cool things and the not so cool things is not so great. 
But even a few cool things that you get to do during a year of playing Bizet or whatever it is, <laughs> sometimes just a couple of cool things can straighten it all out. It's like the golf analogy. You can go out and have a really god-awful round of golf, but you can hit one really great tee shot, and that'll bring you back the next week. You know, this mm-hmm. is a little bit like that where, you know, you can have a whole bunch of um, – I'm going to say this and then I'm going to backtrack a little bit. You can play 26 Nutcrackers, but then you can also play the Weird Al Yankovic show and have an incredibly great time. And it balances out the 26 Nutcrackers, which is like punching a clock sometimes, you know? Yeah. Especially 26 of them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's, you get numb. You forget where you are. You know, (laughs) have we played this page yet kind of thing? Because that's happened to me. But I, I think it's, I think for me, it's all, it's all about really just as like, it's a part of who I am as a person. And it's a part of who I was, like I said, from the time I was a little kid, it was just like, wow, this is it. And, you know, you, you get these bumps in the road in your career, but if you hit enough bumps in a road, sometimes you change careers. But I've tended to be more the guy who reacts to those bumps in the road more of the time with like just la- being able to laugh about them. Because mm. I think having a sense of humor is like <laughs> might actually be your most important skill set if you're going to be a musician, if you're going to be a happy one. Because this is just so much stuff that happens. It's just so ludicrous. You just have to laugh about it. Yeah. I wonder if you have sort of an answer to this question. If you can, you know, so when you're doing this thing with students early on, you're trying to vibe them out, trying to see, like, what's this commitment level like you described. Sometimes I would put myself in this category, like, there will be students who excel at the instrument because, like, they got praise for it and they excelled and they don't know if this is the thing that they want to do, but, like, they're doing it because that's the thing that people say nice job with. How do you, like, if you notice that, like, what is your... Like sort of if you have like a way of encouraging them or a way of like sifting through that, I'd be really curious if you Wow. Do. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a big problem. I mean, because it's like people sometimes just get pushed along in this this path of being a trumpet player by by having sometimes a parent who really pushes them. Sometimes it's like a band director or just somebody in the community who who's like support and praise pushes them through, like you're saying, into this pathway that they really weren't sure they wanted to be in in the first place. I honestly think that that's probably more common than the commitment issue as as far as this. It's harder to to negotiate that, I think, sometimes, because getting the student sometimes to realize that that's really why they're playing trumpet can be difficult and it can be actually really painful for them. Or it can be like, um, I can't think of the right word. Demeaning is the wrong word, but it sort of devalues their feeling about it if they suddenly discover that that's why they're playing trumpet is their their band directors all the way through kept saying, you got to be a trumpet player, you got to go to college. And they just kind of, because they were young and unformed, went, okay, okay. And then they went to college and then they realized that they really want to be a chemical engineer or whatever. That can be a hell of a struggle for these guys, and they feel this kind of moral obligation to those people that supported them mm-hmm. to follow through on something that maybe, like you're saying, maybe they don't really want to do. That's tough. That's a tough one. I've been there before, too, with students where 
sometimes you have to kind of get them to look in the mirror in that fashion. And that can be really challenging for them. But I think it's better for me to do that if I can while they're still in school and maybe save them a bunch of money and time. Sure. You know, if they if if they're not feeling it, you can kind of tell pretty early. And I spend a lot of time just I mean, maybe to my detriment as a teacher, maybe, I don't know, trying to figure out what people are like. You know, what was your week like? I I end up talking to students all the time about, you know, what was your what was your childhood like? Do you have a good childhood or you are you, you, you have a good relationship with your parents? Are you like are you happy with your family? Did you like high school? You know, and and a lot of stuff can come out of those kind of intrusive questions that I'll ask people that I think helps me figure out how to teach them sometimes and maybe how to tell them they shouldn't be doing this anymore sometimes. That's obviously, I mean, hopefully a lot more rare, but it's still there. Yeah, that's 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 like the essence of teaching at this point for me is to try to figure out if this person should really be doing this. Well, and then, I just wonder too, We, at least in my perception, it's like an, it can be like almost an all or nothing thing. It's either oh, you yeah. will pursue this as your career or you have failed and you have to put your horn in the case for the rest of your life. And I feel that there is a middle ground in there. Oh yeah. I mean, you got to tell people that, I mean, how many times have we had this same conversation with somebody at a concert where some nice old guy comes up to you afterwards and says, you know, I used to play trumpet. And I always say, well, why'd you quit? And the answer is always one of three things. They had to go in the military, they got married, or they went to college for something else. And I'll say to them, do you miss it? And 100% of the time they say, oh yeah, I wish I'd never quit. And it's like, so why don't you go buy a trumpet and, and start playing again? And I will always say, here's how you do that. There's got to be a community band in your area. I mean, do you, do you play in church? Do you go to church? They're going to, there's no safer place for you to possibly play than for your, for your congregation at the church that you've been going to for 45 years, right. you know? So yeah, it, we don't have to all be professionals. I mean, it would be sort of a miserable situation because somebody has to go to the concerts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I, I mean, you brought up a really interesting point as well about, your job as a teacher, I also think that there is a possible, I don't know if it's pervasive, but there is a vibe that like we, like they only have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And that four to six years span, they got to get like as far as they possibly can get. And like, I think what we're inherently saying is two things that basically them as a trumpet player is the only thing that we need to be concerned with. And number two, then they must not be able to grow after that six years. Yeah. I think that's kind of arrogant on a teacher's part, honestly. It's like the only way you can learn is from me. <laughs> it's just, or just this, yeah. And 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 from like, a, if we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Like maybe <laughs> it's just from a place of like, this is like, you'll never, ha- you have like time. You're here to do this one, ideally this one thing. And so it's like, we got to get the most out of it. But it just seems like your perspective of let's figure out who you are as a human. Let's have, let's like explore what it is to have hard conversations with yourself with someone who can help you do that. Seems like it, that's a life skill that you're going to need for the rest of your life, let alone yeah. deciding about the trumpet. And I'm also constantly telling them that really what my big goal is to get them to be able to teach themselves where I don't even need to be in the room ever again. You know, where it's like, if you can learn to listen to yourself critically 
and analyze what you're doing, analyze what you need, and figure out some kind of a strategy to fix the things that you're struggling with, then why are you giving me any money anymore? And it's sort of where I think in some ways I gained the most ground as a trumpet player in the 10 years after I left college. Sure. And I had really great teachers, but it might have taken me a while to to really digest everything they were saying. And this is this is basically like what all of my platform is right now is I feel that, yeah, I made all of that. I, I did the same thing. Like I got to a point where I had had great teachers. They told me what to do, but I never like learned to internalize the process. Even if they would have said, I want you to learn how to practice. I still didn't even understand that that should be a priority of mine. And so a big yeah. part of what I'm trying to do is basically say like, you should care about this now, especially as a student. Uh, in what ways do you have those conversations with your, do you have that kind of a blunt thing with them or oh, is yeah. there just a process that you're trying to put them through? I think you, I think if there's something else that I do that's um, different than what I got that I wish I had gotten when I was a student is I really do talk a lot about how do you practice. And I, I'll ask everybody the question, what's the purpose of practicing? You know, why are you practicing? And, and you know, I'm going to tell a story without mentioning names, but I had a student that was here a few years ago who was a freshman student and was and was, I'm going to call it practicing, who was playing trumpet five hours a day in a practice room and absolutely getting nowhere uh, because he was just like bashing through stuff over and over and over and over and over again. And he had a tremendous work ethic, but he had the complete inability to recognize what he needed to work on. So he was absolutely wasting his time. And there were some really hard conversations with this guy to, to get him to see that Really what you need to be doing is like developing some kind of a, you know, have a plan. Don't just go in and, and play the entire, you know, whatever book he was working on that week or whatever solo he was damaging <laughs> himself with for five <laughs> hours at a time. I would listen to this guy practice and just like kind of my jaw would hang open because it was just like repetitious, the same exact mistakes over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then I would talk to him about it in his lesson the next week, and he just wouldn't understand what I meant. Mm. So I think it's, a, I don't know, I just think it's like you got to learn how to practice. You have to learn how to get better. And it isn't just like by applying the BAME or by applying the Brandt book or by applying the Clark Technical Studies or the, you know, 20 pounds of Arbens or whatever. You have to do it for a reason. And I don't think I ever really got that. I mean, I think there was an undercurrent of, like, this is why you're doing this stuff. But if I had known this is specifically what you're supposed to be working on, this is the physiology stuff that you should be doing this week, and you should be doing it in this fashion. I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to be that specific about stuff with my students now. And then I basically just basically bash them over the head with, take a new piece of music apart a little tiny bit at a time, and play it very slowly with the metronome on and not only learn the piece of music, but improve your trumpet playing in the process yeah. by just not going so fast. Slow down, man. And I was the champion of, of uh, bad practicing when I was an undergraduate. I don't think I ever figured this out until I was in a, in the doctoral program at Eastman. I just didn't know how to get better because yeah. nobody really told me how to do this stuff or what it was for. Why do you think that is? Because I would assume most teachers, it's not a function of like, I don't think this is important. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe both of these guys, 
especially my undergraduate teacher, maybe just assumed I was smarter than I actually am or something, because I just, <laughs> I just never got very much better except at the one thing that I did for a couple hours a day, which was just working on my range. Mm-hmm. That's kind of was my only skill set. And then Keith Johnson gave me a really specific, <laughs> specific set of skills, uh, just about like sounding better, but like, I had to figure out on my own, how do I learn the Tomasi efficiently? Yeah. You know, how do I learn? I mean, I got a great story about this. It's depressing, but I'll tell you, you know, how do I learn how to play Petrushka? Nobody ever taught me how to learn how to play Petrushka. So what I did instead was play it 427,000 times badly. <laughs> you know? yep. So now I, I mean, I basically would have to die and be reincarnated as someone else in order to be able to play the, the ballerina's dance from Petrushka because I've played it so many times. I've played it so many times. Your hands. Sorry. It's all good. Hands off. It's all good. No, I think that's a pretty common story, actually. You know, just like, well, just hacker. Like, it's interesting. I have relayed stories that I've heard about famous trumpet players who can do amazing things on the instrument. And the common story is this person just played in the practice room and just did things that they couldn't do. Yeah. And then that's how I did it. But it doesn't make, if you think about it to me, it doesn't make any sense. Cause like, when would they have established good habits about balance and air? Like, when would they have established the way that they can play the trumpet officially, efficiently, if they never, if they only sounded bad? Yeah, man, that's a mystery to me. I mean, there are people out there that are just freak gifted trumpet players. I mean, and then there's people out there that are freak gifted trumpet players who also practice 10 hours a day, like Hardenberger. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason he is who he is, but did he have to wade through all the, the basic fundamental flaws that I have in my career? Maybe not. Maybe he just had a good sound, you know, from the time he came out of the womb. That just <laughs> sounds unfair, but there, there's people like that too. And that's almost like a, that's almost like a different disadvantage. If you've got incredible basic level of skills and ability, sometimes you don't ever need to work on anything. So you come to college and you've been kind of coasting on your, your high level of skill and all of a sudden you you find out that you have to, like, you can't triple tongue or you can't do this or you can't transpose and you don't know how to develop right. any kind of work ethic to deal with that. It's almost easier to teach somebody that's a little more conscious of their their soft spots. I think I would argue, I just did an episode last week with a guy named Jason Haheim, who is the timpanist in the Met. And he was saying there's evidence, essentially evidence that would say, having an amount of natural talent is actually a weakness Yeah, for that exact reason. Because like, you don't, you don't have like the grit attached to dealing with yeah. problems. You just are like, Oh, this must not be for me. Cause I'm not already good at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, I think I was honestly, I think I had some genetic material that was lucky that got me through high school and then undergraduate. And then I just ran into a wall later on cause I didn't know how to work. Yeah. And and nobody, like I said, just nobody told me how to practice and nobody told me how to learn. And I think there's a couple of things that are semantics. But when you're working on a piece of music, you shouldn't practice that piece of music until you've learned it. Right. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but I think we all have the habit of like diving in and playing through it once at like 90 percent of tempo. And then what we've already done is set some parameters up in our dendrites that are going to include mistakes. Sure. So I'm always talking about like the first time through, play it as perfectly as you can. Yeah, I would be curious if 
what you said makes perfect sense. I don't think anyone would disagree with it yet. We have like an epidemic of people who don't do that, right? <laughs> and so what do you think the biggest hindrance to people embracing that methodology or that mindset is? Oh my God. Can I do I have to give you just one answer? I, I mean you can say any words that you feel. Wow. I mean, I think human nature. How's that? I think that's the probably the best answer. Cause I mean, we all have we all have personalities and we all have like um you know different levels of ability to focus or different levels of, of desire or willingness to do hard work. And I think there are people that, you know, you've taught, I've taught that just don't know how to work. They just don't know. <laughs> they just the don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. A cat just walked. I told you it was going to happen. Sorry, sorry. And I knew which one it would be. And I was yeah. right. So I, I mean, there, there are people that just don't have, like you said, the word grit. That's like a big word right now in the education world. And I think it's more about, grit and stubbornness sometimes than it is about trumpet playing or skills. Yeah. I think patience is the big one. You know, it's just understanding that it takes time to develop and that if it doesn't happen right away, it doesn't mean it's not working. But yeah, I, I think I, I completely agree with everything you've talked about, you know, having a plan that you can invest in means that like, you understand that every day is building something. It's not necessarily, and I feel like people who don't have a, like a sort of a, even a, like a short-term plan, let alone a long-term plan, you have to basically prove to yourself every day that the work you did today did something. And so maybe you're willing to play slowly, but you got to prove to yourself at the end of the practice session that it did something, but that's not how learning works. It doesn't, it doesn't, it takes more than a day to really ingrain something, I yeah. think. And so that, that patience of like, I don't have a plan. I need to know almost out of fear that like I'm wasting my time. I feel like is a huge hindrance. Yep. I think I had the patience and long-term goal set of a squirrel on crack when I was in college, <laughs> honestly, I just didn't ever, I just didn't. No, you know, so what I try to talk about now is like a three level plan where you've got a plan for the next few days or the week, you know, divide the divide our lives into seven days, chunk, seven day chunks nowadays always. And then then you've got like a maybe a plan for the end of this year. And then I will literally at the start of the end every semester. I'll refer back to what your long term goal is and how is what we're doing making you feel like you're going to get to that long term goal. I think if you've got an arc that's like one short one, one medium one, one long one, some version of that I really think would have helped me an awful lot when I was in school. What are your thoughts on the discipline of practicing the trumpet helping develop us as human beings? Wow. That's another huge question. Holy cow, man. Um I thought this was going to be fun. You're making my brain hurt. All right. So I think anything that you learn how to do that takes discipline is going to make you a more disciplined person. Life takes a certain amount of discipline. Getting out of bed in the morning sometimes takes more discipline than we have. Um, getting your bills paid and your taxes done on time and your laundry done and all of the sort of adult stuff that basically isn't very much fun. You know, Thursday night around our house is trash night. So I have to gather up all the trash with the help of my older kid. 
Unpaid help is the best, by the way, with the help of my, <laughs> my older son. We do all the trash and the recycling. And then we have four cats. And I'll just say the dreaded words, cat litter. And it's really like this stuff isn't fun. And a lot of like adulthood just is kind of a drag. So if you can develop enough discipline to make sure that you're practicing every day, you can probably get the cat litter done on Thursday night without it being too much of a problem. And I also think that that obviously goes the other way too. You know, I uh, I think it's hard for for everybody, and I think all the talk about generational differences is is there may be some truth to it. I think it's overstated. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not a boomer. I'm not really in any of those things exactly, which is kind of cool. So it's hard to categorize me, but I do feel like like my dad's generation as a whole just sort of accepted that life was going to be full of work. Mm-hmm. And I, honest to God, my dad lived to be 82 years old. I never heard him complain once. <laughs> Seriously, he just never complained. And his life from uh, from a very young child was pretty much like a, a bad movie. I mean, my Scottish grandmother eloped with a guy – when she was 16 or 17 and hopped on a train. I mean, we're talking, this is like 1920. Mm. She hopped on a train and took a train out to, to Oregon to be with my paternal grandfather, who turned out to be a trumpet player in every sense of the word. <laughs> Sorry, because um, I shouldn't joke about this. this is horrible. But he, but he uh, had a gambling problem and... He got so bad into gambling debt that he took his own life when my dad was two. So here's my grandma and her two-year-old son on another train coming back to Iowa where they lived for a few years in the basement of a high school because they had no money. And she paid for that by being a cook for the school. So my dad was an only child with no father for years and, I mean, grew up like as poor as you can grow up. And honest to God, I never heard the guy complain about anything ever, except that, you know, maybe somebody mixed him a J and B and soda without enough J and B in it every once in a while. And that would be a joke. (laughs) So this is, this is like that whole generation, all those old guys that were his friends at the cafe in town. I never heard any of them complain about anything. Half of them were in World War II in combat. One of the nicest, sweetest men that I've ever known in my life was a neighbor three or four miles north of us that one day I asked dad, what's with Bob's eyes? And my dad turned to me and said, you didn't know this? And I was like, no. And he said, well, he said Bob lost an eye over Dresden uh, from German anti-aircraft fire. And all of a sudden, this guy's entire life story changed completely for right, me. Right, right. And I do think that there's, I don't want to say that there's this entitlement problem because that's taken it too far. But I don't know. Maybe every generation says this about the younger generation. They've been complaining about this since, you know, Roman times thousands of years ago. But I think my dad just worked and didn't complain. My mom was the same way. Yeah. And I don't know if it's different now or if it's just perceived and I'm just the old fart now. So I perceive it as being 
you dang kids don't know how to work. I, when I was a boy, you know, I, I think there's an element of that, but I also think there might be an element of truth to it. So when you have students that, um, let's say they have excuses, it's, I had too much of this or I didn't have enough time. Like, what's your response? Do you respond in, I feel like it's one of two responses and I feel like both are appropriate depending on the student. One is like, no excuses. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You do your work. Or let's talk about why, you know, these things took precedent. Or let's talk about why you're struggling because I feel like both are equal. Like, what's your particular take on that when students are struggling? It's pretty much always option B because I think the whole student is, you're going to get a better result if you don't just immediately slam them with a sledgehammer about being late one day. I just, I don't think that ever worked, even though it's what everybody did 50 years ago. Um, so I'm going to try to figure out if it's legitimate. And I mean, fortunately with all the students here, it's legitimate because the students that come to school here are like the vast majority in the last 20 years have all been here with all the best intent in the world. I don't have students that are here because they didn't have anywhere else to go or they didn't know what to do. So I'm really lucky in that sense. The students usually come in and I can kind of see on their face, even before they talk to me about this, that they've had a week, you know, mm-hmm. where they had to do some big project for a class. And they, it, pretty much if a student comes in with big bags under their eyes, I know what's coming and there's no reason to get mad at them about it because there's only 24 hours in a day. And pretty much what I'll do, I mean, it's just like I use guilt more as a motivator than yelling. And, you know, I'll try to remind them as nicely as possible that don't forget that the real reason you're here is not to write a 10-page paper about the clausula or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, music history friends, but... <laughs> Wait, do I have any music history? Never mind. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't anymore, yeah. I guess. But, but like, of course, they have to jump through all the academic hoops. And some of the time, there's too many hoops for them to get through. Yeah. Now, if that's a chronic thing, like every rare, every once in a while, somebody comes in and basically they've got an excuse that's this week. And then it's the n- different excuse the next week. And then it's a recycled similar excuse the third week. Then it's time for a longer conversation sure. over a cup of coffee or lunch, or then we go back to the whole thing about, is this what you really want to do? And I, you know, it, there's just one of those in, in every group. It's just like human nature. Yeah. I think it's too, like really important, just the realness of that. Like it's okay if this isn't what you want to do, but like you should say it out loud. So you like hear yourself say that this is not what I want to do. Like, <laughs> don't make me be the person that kicks you out. Like you should acknowledge yeah. that this is what your actions are implying. We should just actually figure out if that's the case. And it's really hard for a lot of people because of what we talked about before. They've got parents or band directors or, or whatever that have just sort of pushed them through this, this corral of being a trumpet player. And they only have this one shoot that they're going through and they have never had any other options. But maybe way back in the back of their mind the whole time, they've been saying, hey, wait a minute, I, I want to be a plumber, you know, and, and just giving them that opportunity is sometimes the biggest favor you can do for somebody. I would imagine you have great relationships with your students after they graduate. And is that, would you say that to be, I mean, other than them being liars, like you described. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, what's kind of cool is about when they graduate, so I can officially just become friends with them. Sure. You know, instead of having to maintain some tiny little thin veneer of the teacher-student relationship, it's like I can get to the point where I can actually, you know, literally and metaphorically just have a beer with them. And 
I love the the transition that they make from students to colleagues. It's one of my favorite things about getting to do this because then I can start like picking their brain out about how to do things better. And that's pretty fun. Yeah. That's really fun. I love doing that because I, it, I've been really, really, really lucky. I've got a lot of former students that are really amazing people and I love staying in touch with them. It's just one of my favorite things about this. It's been one of the nice things like you started to say almost about the pandemic is I've had some more time to reach out to those people recently. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've just, I've started to really understand and like the pandemic for me, like issued this sort of like severance, obviously for all of us of just everything that I knew. And so I'm starting to like, I started thinking about stuff. And one thing I realized is just like having people in your corner is way it's, I knew it was important. But when you like kind of have a life where you can choose who you talk to on any given day and you could be surrounded by people who are in your corner, like totally surrounded by that, uh, is a different experience for me. And you realize like if you could, you have the opportunity to continue being that for your students even after they go and they trust you because you established that's what you care about, like the whole person, not just like yeah. ushering themselves as trumpet players. I think that's yeah. a really special thing. Well, I mean, I just think it's what we ought to do. I mean, it seems like life shouldn't all be focused on, on, I, I think life should be focused on your relationships with other human beings. I mean, I think it's, it's, I've always, I've always had a lot of friends. I've always liked people and I'm the kind of a guy that has, you know, the, the wide circle of friends and then five, six really close friends. And it's hard to not become friends with your students when they're nice people and they share a lot of the same values and, and goals in life as you do. It's like, why wouldn't you be their friend? So like I said, it's, it's nice to get to the graduation so I can start insisting that they swear at me in public, you know, (laughs) the sort of guy friendship signals is just, it's kind of fun. Like I said, I I just think to me, what I, one of the things I really enjoyed about, you know, hearing you talk about your approach to teaching is that like you're, opening the conversation that you that you care about all of them and that sometimes you're to have probably from what i understand there have been many lessons with your students that have nothing to do with the trumpet what that never happens no <laughs> absolutely not and so i just think it's it's special that you're opening this idea but then they as they leave and they become more autonomous on the trumpet like you can still maintain the fact that like well they may, they may not, you know, you may have helped them usher them into their own sort of um, independence on the trumpet, but like there's still all of the richness of the relationship left over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it took me a long time to get past the misguided notion when I was a student that I was a trumpet player. I mean, that was my entire sort of like essence of my humanity for a long time. And that's kind of stupid, really. Because I think you need to be a person who happens to be a trumpet player. But I skipped the person part for years and, and I was just so one dimensional and like, I don't want to say that I, I just didn't talk to people that weren't musicians, but I just didn't have the opportunity to a lot of the time. And I mean, I think there was the, the, the events that we've talked a little bit about leading up to this were we lost a son to leukemia, completely flipped the script for me on how important it is to be a musician. Um, You know, being on stage, 
to play a Mahler symphony used to be the most terrifying thing in the universe to me because it was the most important thing in the universe. But I mean, since having kids for me and what we went through with our son Cameron, when we lost him to leukemia, it made me realize that really one concert is just not really that important in, in the grand scheme of things. It's just like a concert. And in a funny way, what that did was it freed me up from, having to prove myself every time I went out on stage. And instead it's really changed my focus to being like, let's have fun. Let's make, let's, let's say something musically that's going to, you know, try to connect with somebody else's soul instead of like, am I going to screw up the high A and the opening of Mahler five or whatever stupid thing I was worried about before. And of course, you know, the punchline to this is it's made me a better trumpet player because I'm not in my own way all the time. You know, worrying about what note I was going to miss. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're... <laughs> Sorry. No, I I, I I, mean, I don't have that same kind of experience. It's interesting. I, When I reached out to you, I'm sure you saw it. When I reached out to you a few, like a week or so ago, the, la- the only other time I've sent you a Facebook message was like 11 years ago. Yeah, I know. I and saw that. I, I didn't know you at all, but I was sort yeah. of following along sort of vicariously yeah. on Facebook because you were posting about Cam and I sent you that message that was like, I don't know you, but I'm... And it just like brought me... I remember exactly where I was standing. Like I remember where I was. Whoa. It was like a moment for me to like reach out to you and like it was such a crazy thing to hear that it's given you it like has brought you a whole different perspective not only on human relationships but also your relationship with music is so interesting to me it was just i mean it was a horrible experience it was a year from hell and my family i mean you just can't downplay that obviously but i mean what that kid taught me was that the only thing that really matters is how you treat other people and your relationships with other people He went through this incredibly miserable experience and was never mean to anybody in the process. He was just like somehow constitutionally incapable of being mean. And and some of the procedures that he had to go through were really something that I was, was watching him with my jaw hanging open at his forbearance and his inner strength. But he just never like... There was one occasion in the hospital where he kind of tried to get mad about something. And I was in the room laying on the bed with him, literally. And it was something that, I mean, any other person he would have been like flying off the handle about because it was so like, I don't remember exactly what, honestly, but he tried to get really mad. and He got this really angry expression on his face for like five seconds. And then he started laughing. He just couldn't do it. (laughs) And I mean, it it just that kind of stuff. uh, It's just like your perspective obviously completely changes. And mine was already kind of leaning that way because I was getting a little older and getting a little less concerned about my own ego in the process of being a human. And and he just like flipped it completely. The first time I went on stage after that, I don't remember much about the details of it, but it was incredibly liberating to just not worry about things going wrong, but instead just do what we were supposed to do all along, which was just try to focus on presenting something that was going to connect to another person. Yeah. And I did it a hundred percent. And I'm not going to say I do it a hundred percent all the time, but it's a whole lot higher than it used to be. And I'll talk about this all the time in, in guest master classes and stuff. It's like what that made me realize is 
how important music can be because we can really communicate stuff to another person without words that can be profoundly moving to them. And that's kind of what our goal ought to be. Playing all the right notes is pretty boring. Uh, but if you say something that makes another person get misty-eyed or think about their grandma or whatever, then by God, you've done something cool, I think. Yeah. And like, I, I remember Ryan Sharp, one of your former students, one of my really good friends. Yeah. He probably does not remember this, but when I was a junior in school, I went to visit him and we were partying. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> and he just was like so cavalier when he said this. He was just like, you know what? I feel like if I can make one person happy with my playing, I've like done my job for the rest of my life. Not just yeah. like I did it for that day. It's just like everything else is gravy. And that's like stuck with me. That kind of mentality is stuck with me. And it sounds like you're very, it's that very same idea that it's, we don't yeah, even have to have yeah. like an amount of people. It's just <laughs> like if one person, if we, what a gift that is to be able to affect yeah. one person with like a metal instrument that, you know, can't, right. Yeah. It, it can't do anything. It's like us putting it into it. That's a pretty special thing. Yeah. I think that's the whole thing. If you get one of those people that comes up to you after a concert and they've got tears in your eyes not because you hurt them, but <laughs> because you you move them in some fashion. It's like you can you can ride along on that for six months of practicing. Sure, you know? sure. And that's pretty cool. I love that. I I just love that. Can I ask you a really? It's gonna be a weird question. It might be a difficult question. You might not want to answer it. But one of the things I'm really is that a lawnmower. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going to ask the most serious question in this whole <laughs> podcast interview right now. Okay. Um, right. You know, I'm a believer that I've been asking this question. Do people have to suffer to learn these really, really hard lessons? And I am curious because I am thinking the answer is yes, that there is an amount of suffering that comes with some of these perspective shifts. And I'm just curious what your perspective is because you've talked about a perspective shift that came through this insane time in your life. And I've, I'm not going to say you're thankful for that because no one in their right mind would say that. But the perspective shift feels like it's caused a like sort of an openness in you, which made... So I'm just curious what your perspective on all of that is and this idea that suffering um, can cause these kinds of shifts that open up more of us. I think that's a more easy question to answer. What you didn't for, form it as a question, but suffering can cause that for sure. I don't know if it's necessary. I think that's a little, maybe a little presumptuous for me to say that it's necessary. It's presumptuous because of, of the fact that I've had an experience that was full of suffering. So, it, you know, I don't want to make everybody else have to go through that to to be able to feel like they're presenting something. I mean, there are people that I think you and I both know that are old souls, right? They they're, they can do that without going through some kind of suffering, some kind of loss. But the, the I mean, honestly, you know this, the truth of, of, of life is that life is full of losses, you know? It's uh, every day, it seems like, and, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, man, you're younger than me, but when you start to get older, there's people that you've looked up to as mentors for years or friends or relatives or family or whatever. And all of a sudden they disappear from your world. And it's, 
that's a loss, whether it's like immediate family or it's still a loss. Um, there was a, a mentor of mine from Morningside College that passed away just yesterday that it's somebody that I don't think about every day, but he taught my sister. I played in some bands with him. This is a guy that was a really respected educator and he's just gone. Um, and I, boy, I tell you, I'm 60 years old and mortality is all around me. And, you know, you don't think like that when you're 20. Right. I mean, the whole idea that you're 20 and you're going to live forever, mm. dude, dude, it's true. I mean, it's just like what we all feel like, as is proved by some of the stuff I did when I was 20 <laughs> that I wouldn't. <laughs> but I mean, but I don't know if, you know, you have to fill your quota of suffering in order to be. Sure. But I think it sort of probably makes. I think it's fair to say that that suffering can make your performances more deep somehow if you choose to you know like dive into that deep level of emotion about stuff and i i i sort of it is specific to performance but i think also just as humans some of these lessons you know i didn't get tenure in the indianapolis symphony and that's the thing that taught me i'm not a i've literally said it almost exactly the same way you said it i'm not a trumpet player I play the trumpet, right? It's a subtle but very important difference. That taught yeah. me that. And I actually wouldn't trade that for anything because that that thing freed me, like that event. So it's like, yes, getting tenure in an or not getting tenure in orchestra is objectively like a bad thing. But if if it feels to me like it unlocked a part of me that wouldn't have happened otherwise, could I have learned that lesson without that suffering? <laughs> yeah, who knows? And I feel like, like I'm trying to do my best to share. And like that's why some of this interview has gone in the direction it had. It's because I hope people hear it. And I hope that they go, do I, like, am I going to learn this lesson by just being open to what this person is saying and thinking about it? Or am I going to be the person like I was that's, I think I've got most everything figured out. And I'm, and then basically you have to hit rock bottom to start questioning if you know, if what you think you know is actually true. Yeah. I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't either. I, <laughs> so I think some people, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think some people sort of have to get whacked with a two by four to wake up yeah. a little bit. And, and I mean, you know, I, I, what happened with Cam was a, like a getting whacked with a 12 by 12. It was, it was a, Huge perspective change for me. You know, really, do I think about do I want to do I want to play trumpet anymore? Do I want to teach anymore? What do I really want to do with this? Because your whole foundation of your existence is is has been exploded. And luckily, honestly, for me, it was like it wasn't really much of a that that conversation with myself was pretty short. It was like almost like well, yeah, especially because of what happened with Cameron, because I want. You know, this is this is what I thought at first. Is like I want him to be proud. You know, I, I don't know what you think about what happens when people die. It's a very confusing subject for me. Um, I'm not a religious man at all, but I think I'm pretty spiritual. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I have had some really odd experiences that are very specifically related to to Cam that are really hard to explain. Uh, things that we've seen and things that we've heard about. Actually, now that I, the, the look on your face, I'm going to have to tell one story that still really weirds me out. One of his nurses, one of his many nurses, his legion of nurses that were all unbelievably wonderful people, um, went to Omaha with a friend of hers. And this friend of hers was going to visit a medium, 
a spiritual medium. And this is the kind of a thing that, you know, at this point in the story, my general reaction is to just sort of roll my eyes and go get another cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So she's in the room with this friend of hers talking to this woman who is a medium who is in that sort of circle, apparently somebody who's well known who does not take money. So she's not a con artist in the thing to sort of pull dollar bills out of people's wallets. And she's listening to her friend. I'll say the name. The nurse's name is April. So this medium is listening to April's friend. And all of a sudden, the medium kind of like raised her hand and said, I have to stop this for a second. And she turns to April and she says, there's something that I'm getting that I have to ask you about. Was there some small... Was there a child that you know that you were felt close to that passed away recently whose name is like, she said a name really close to Cameron. She said the name, I can't remember what it was. And April just like turned white as a sheet and said, yes, there's a little boy named Cameron. And the, the, the medium snapped her fingers and said, that's it, it's Cameron. Cameron has a message for his parents through you. And the message was twofold. And it was tell mom and dad that it's okay. And tell mom and dad that the little memorial thing on the piano is really pretty cool. Yeah. And on the piano was a picture, a drawn, a a pencil drawing of Cameron from a piano recital And just a couple of other things. And honestly, also, this is too much information, but his ashes were on the piano. And there's a symbol, literally a symbol from a drum set from Neil Peart. And Cameron was a big Rush fan, and Neil sent him this symbol. So there's this stuff on the piano. And this got somehow passed through this woman to this nurse. And April called us on the way home from Omaha and said, I have to come and see you guys. And we talked to her the next day about this. And it just... To this day, I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, right? wow. I mean, it was so specific that it's just like too weird. And it's not, April wasn't even the one that was there to talk to this lady. Right. So, But how would that lady well, know about any of them? Yeah, <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah, that's... Wow. That's, that's really something. And, you know, I don't know what that means. But I got to say that I took it to heart that Cameron's primary message was tell mom that it's okay. Yeah. Tell mom and dad that it's okay. That, because that would be just like him. Just to, like, he was, he was, he was a kid that we've talked about since, uh, since he died that just sort of really wasn't of this earth in a lot of ways. Um, we've heard the expression about him from other people that he just was not, this, he was too good to be here. Yeah, wow. And he taught us all a lot about patience and forbearance and and just like being nice. So his his uh, his soul, if you want to say it, that was pretty huge. Yeah. Wow. So we've never pursued this Omaha connection. I mean, we're almost kind of afraid to yeah, in yeah. a way. It's just that was that was one of the most striking experiences of my whole life. 
Yeah, I actually, I mean, this doesn't, I've said this a few times on the podcast and this doesn't happen very often, but I really have nothing to say about that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I just like, there was no way that this was a con. It was just no way that this was some kind of a game. Wow. So anyway, to get back to the point that I just completely like went off the rails wow. about, it's like, so I wanted to keep playing because I kind of wanted to feel like Cam might know that I was okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, to this day, I am playing certain pieces in particular. I am playing like for him. I'm playing them for him. Uh, so that that question was fairly easily answered, I guess, for me. Yeah, it's the same deal. I just, um, it's just a weird thing to start to talk about. You know what I mean? Just to ask like <laughs> yeah. this suffering in your life, like. You know, what has it taught you? Because I feel like it's, it's all, like you said, it's a bit of a presumptuous question. It's a good way to put it. It's because I feel like I've learned from my suffering and I, a lot, like almost all of my platform, like if I were to boil it down, it's me trying to convince, like it's me trying to find a way to talk about it that would convince myself 10 years ago that I should care about what I care about now. God, yes. I mean, I think, don't you think that's just getting older? I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> basically, there's two strikes against us because we're, we're young and we're trumpet players, sure, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we're just, we're sort of stupid for two reasons. And then eventually, hopefully, you gain a little knowledge. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, a lot of, I'm curious what you think about this. A lot of what I'm doing right now spurred from a conversation I kind of had with myself about gifts and skills. And I thought for the longest time, my my gift or like my skill, the thing that I could do was to play the trumpet. And and I don't know how it took me this long to dawn on me that that is a result of application of gifts that I've been given, not the actual gift itself. So I started thinking, well, what are those gifts? And yeah. and like it started me down this road where I feel like like this podcast is a great example. Like I love to be able to connect with people and have like like. I almost like I couldn't do small talk with people because I just didn't care about it. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But I just like we didn't care about small talk. But this allows me to skip straight past and just talk about whatever yeah. I want to talk about, you know? So in some ways it allowed me to like interact with people on the in the way that I wanted to interact with. And uh it's so like what for you does that does that mean anything to you in that regard? Like what do you feel like skills and gifts means to you and how do you think about either in your own life following and pursuing skills and gifts or helping students find that truth for themselves? God, you keep asking these gigantic questions. So I guess I I feel like I, me too, man. I guess I feel like I got, the word gifts is always giving me the heebies, honestly, (laughs) but I feel like I got, I got musical gifts from my family, from my dad, especially um, I feel like I got the gift of a of really sincere work ethic from both my parents, my mom especially. And I feel like those two things are really the only reason we're having this conversation. You know, if I'd been any other guy with any other parents growing up in that part of the country, I'd probably be, you know, working at the grain elevator in town and drinking beer at the the you know, not that this is necessarily a bad lifestyle choice, but I think this is a little more interesting. Mm. So I think those gifts made me go somewhere and the gift of stubbornness from both my parents made me work through my playing stuff that I had to work through. But I think 
it, it, I was like you. I was a trumpet player, and I think eventually what you should figure out is that the only thing that really lasts that's of any import, any meaning to anybody at all is your interactions with other people. I mean, that happened for me in a, literally in a five second change in my life when Cameron was born, you know, and I was terrified of being a father. Oh God, it was the, the I would rather have gone on stage in Carnegie Hall to try to play something I'd never played before in front of a sold out Carnegie Hall naked than have a child because <laughs> I was terrified. But then the minute I hold this this little baby, it was like this chemical thing happened, literally, because I've read about this because it happens to fathers too. And it was kind of like all of a sudden, oh, okay, I got this. And it was seriously like nothing else matters anymore. It's just like trying to Trying to raise a, a human being that isn't going to become an axe murderer becomes the most important thing. Sure. Yeah. One of the things I've been realizing in my own life, I would love your perspective on this, is um, this idea of work and working a lot or are you working enough? And so to walk you through the, the it's like the three things that I've been thinking about. Number one, I have to ask myself, because I'm doing this coaching thing now, right? Where I'm trying to help people exactly what we talked about, learn how to practice. It's like a big goal of mine. And I have structure and I believe it works. I've seen it work, yada, yada, yada. I ask, but if it's not like presenting itself in growth towards like a possible full-time thing, I, then I'm asking myself, well, why not? Am I, not, am I working hard enough? And I, or should I do more? And the answer for me right now is no, I should not do more. And the reason for that is if I started working more, I would see my family less and I'd probably be irritable with them. So it would, it would take away the quality of the time and I would get less of it. So I'm not willing to sacrifice that. And then I ask myself, is the work important? Well, I believe the work that I'm doing is very important. So then the third thing is, it looks like I just got to keep doing the work and be patient. And that's what we were talking about earlier. And I'm just curious too, because it's not worth now for me, what I'm realizing with my family, that's like actual, that that's like actually there right in front of me. Like these people care about me. It's like, I'm trying to work so hard for a bunch of like people on the other side of a phone and thinking that that's the most important thing that I'm doing. And it is important, but I have these creatures that are like yeah. wholly dependent upon what I'm do, like how I yeah. interact with them. Just curious what any of your thoughts are about all, any of that. Oh, come on. You already answered it. I mean, yeah, that's this, if I had to make a decision between ever playing a trumpet again or ever being able to teach again and being a better father or being a good father, I wouldn't even have to think about sure. it. It'd be like, here's my horns. Goodbye. You know? Yeah. And I think that's just a, product of, like I said, that moment that happened when I held Cameron like five seconds after he was born. It was just like, oh, okay, I got it. I understand now. And I think, I mean, you've opened up a can of worms that I'm going to rant a little bit about. Yes. I think one of the things about this that's so weird is that to go back to what I think is wrong with our country in a lot of ways is this country puts so much emphasis on getting ahead and success and money and our Ferrari and all that stuff that I think is just completely pointless and meaningless and really not very much emphasis on like being a good father or a good mother or a good parent. And I think that's really kind of what's wrong with our country is that we're like parenthood and raising people that aren't ax murderers has become like not even in the top 10 of the list of things socially that's really important enough it's like uh 
it's goofy. We've gotten caught up in the rat race to the point where we've almost like being a parent is almost sort of an afterthought for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's going to like screw us up really seriously in the future is that we've kind of forgotten how important it is that you're, you're, I told you I was going to rant. Sorry. Your, your position as a parent should be absolutely number one on your list of what's important to you. And it should be number one through five of what's important to you. And sometimes it's hard to remember because our ego gets in the way and we want to do stuff for ourselves, which is kind of natural. But I think you just have to be aware of what you're doing is, is leaving a little version of you in the world. And if you don't do it right, that little version of you could turn out to be something that you wouldn't be very happy about. Yeah. So honestly, I mean, you know, it's just like you, this has got to come first. And seriously, at the age of 60, I keep coming back to that because it just happened recently and it was a little startling. It's just like, especially now, it's like my, my perspective is, God, none of this other stuff really makes any difference. I'd rather just play cribbage with my kid, you know? So that's a that's a rant answer to your to your rant-worthy question. That was the <laughs> nicest rant I've ever heard from my life. <laughs> well, you told me to keep that's the true, F-bombs down. That's true, that's true. I did ask for that. <laughs> yeah, I think too, I mean, if I were to go uh, sort of on a bit of a diatribe or a rant, um, I think part of what happens for us as musicians specifically, you're talking about the country as a whole, and I think it is indicative of this sort of work-centric culture, Um but I think as musicians, we've added this other thing that like serving music is like a noble cause and that it is our responsibility to go out there and heal people and we should give our entire lives to this cause because it deserves it at the expense of our families, at the expense of our health, at the expense of everything. And I don't, I don't disagree, as you've described, I don't disagree that music has th- that kind of power, but like it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't think music has demanded that of us. We have just convinced ourselves that because we want it to feel important with, yeah. with when we have to sort of make it important without just letting it be important. Yeah. We're trying to, we're trying to like further ennoble what we do for a living. And the truth is what we do for a living is we make buzzing sounds into a piece of plumbing right. and it's really just sort of goofy. If you reduce it to that. No, I, I mean, there's there's just you know legions of stories about people who were fabulous musicians or composers or conductors or whatever and were like absolutely miserable at being parents and it makes me think a lot less of them as a person because i really do think that what should be the most important thing is being a good parent you know you got to go through all this classes and preparation and stuff to just get your driver's license. But, you know, anybody can be a parent and pretty much just like try to learn on the fly. And there really isn't much emphasis on learning how to do this better. There's no emphasis on learning how to do this better. And I think it's really pretty awful because society is not the same as it was a hundred years ago. And what happened a hundred years ago is you were home with both parents and you observed what they did as parents And what they did as parents was pretty much on their list, at least one of those two people that was first on their list all the time. And it was really different. And I think things have changed. I'm not sure the change is bad, but I think 
we need to adjust our approach to learning how to be a parent and adjust our focus. It's a missed focus. This country's focus on success and getting ahead and this striving, striving, striving that we do, and then you're dead. You know, it just doesn't make much sense. (laughs) You know, you reach the brass ring, but you have a heart attack in the process because of the fact that you worked yourself into an early grave. It's just not right. Yeah. And I mean, that's another example. I mean, if we take it outside of the parent, the importance of the parenting thing, like if a lot of us are pursuing this rat race success type thing at the expense of our own health, it's like you have all of this success possibly at some point, but you can't enjoy it because your health is so horrible. It just doesn't, I think there's some quote, I don't remember if it's like Dalai Lama or Gandhi, some very, very smart spiritual, I think Eastern philosophy talks about how like we spend all of our time and we spend our health trying to get ahead. And then when we get there, I don't remember the exact quote, I could look it up, but it's that kind of idea that it's like once we get there, it's like we have that thing and we have no health and we have no happiness and all that kind of stuff. And you know, we're, we're like reaching for retirement, right? Because we're so miserable at our jobs. Isn't that another thing to think about with right. this? It's like, if you really love what you're doing, you wouldn't look forward to retirement so much. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. This is a crazy world. Uh, and I think, you know, we're all just trying to learn, trying to do a little bit better. I just think we have a lot more, like a lot of access to a lot more information than ever used to. And I think that's part of the problem in a sense. I'm not trying to blame social media because I did watch that social, I will. I I watched that social (laughs) dilemma documentary. That was like quite horrifying, but just, you know, interesting to watch. But I just think, yeah, if we have no way of understanding like who we want to be, and then we look to everywhere else to tell us what we got to do, I think that's really where the problem lies is we just don't necessarily know what we're grounded in, in terms of principles, in terms of what we think is important. So we're looking everywhere else and everywhere else is, looks like it's all about success and all those kinds of, even though other people are struggling with the exact same things we're struggling with, we don't see it. We see the curated version of everything and it just becomes hard. Yeah. I mean, you and I got that uh, from parents. I mean, I got that, like what life should be like for my parents is that you have fun and you work your butt off. And I just, I didn't have to be, told any of that stuff. It's just what my mom and dad were like. And we were really poor when I was a kid, but we didn't even realize it because we were laughing about everything all the time. I mean, we, you know, played a lot of cards and played a lot of board games and we read a lot, a lot of books. Uh, We just didn't have much of anything, but we had the, we had the outside too, which is different. I mean, I could just go outside and build a fort, you know, it's like pretty idyllic in a lot of ways, but I, it's just not as common anymore. Yeah. You know, both. I'm not saying it's bad that both parents work. Don't get me wrong. I'm. I'm not. This is a dangerous thing to bring up, honestly, because it sounds like I'm saying that somebody should be home. I just don't think that's necessary. But I do think that means you have to rebalance the time that you spend at home with your kids. Yeah, and the whole reason this got brought up too is just. I mean, th- that's partially why I brought it up as well. So not. I mean, the parenting thing is really important to me, but the parenting thing is an example of why I feel like working harder is or doing more is not the answer for where I'm at in yeah. my career. Yeah. So going deeper into the things that I'm doing, that I'm already doing, so I'm not necessarily spending more time, I'm just going deeper, certainly is. And the way that I feel like uh, I could pose it in the form of a question for you is when you have a student who's basically at the end of their education, could be anything, and they're ready, they're basically, they're going to have a playing career, whether it's like in an orchestra or just a great, you know, freelancing um, career, but they're not there yet. 
and they're worried that things are not happening, they're not getting gigs, like what is your way to encourage them to say it's not necessarily going out practicing for four more hours per day or trying to do this or trying to do that, but it's a bit of like, we just got to be a little bit patient and just like trust the process that like these things will happen if we are the people and the players we need to be when the opportunities come. Yeah, you just answered the question because well, it's almost exactly. <laughs> no, it's okay. It makes it easier on me. <laughs> and seriously, it's about all you need to say. And, and you can say it in whatever different language works for you and for them or whatever. But that's basically it. We just got to just trust the process. You know, you've done all the stuff that you're supposed to do. Now it's like almost kind of in the hands of fate. And you just have to go through your days and enjoy your day, you know, instead of worrying about what might be or what's coming down the road, you've got to enjoy today. Enjoy that cup of coffee, enjoy a slice of pizza at lunch and enjoy the company of your friends and, and enjoy what you get out of playing trumpet, which hopefully is still something that's, that brings you happiness, even if it's work, you know, enjoy the moment. Don't worry so much about tomorrow because that's, I think our biggest downfall. Yeah, I actually think, I mean, this is oversimplification, but I would say anxiety is worrying about tomorrow's problems today. Yeah. What's the, it's, it's like paying interest on problems that might not happen, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been, I, 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 a few times in this interview, I've thought of this question that I'm going to ask you now, but I lost it because we went somewhere else. So I'm glad I came back because I believe you'll have an interesting perspective on this. This concept of being provided for and security and that being something we all seek. And obviously you talked about when you were a kid, you were poor, but you didn't know it. And then you went to Eastman and you were like literally starving. And like a lot of us feel like we're not doing great, but like you're literally starving. Like you actually knew what that was like. And what's your, for, I have my own ideas, but I'm just curious, what's your relationship with like being provided for or having financial security? Like, I don't know how to describe this question without telling you what I think. And I don't want to give the, what I think away because I keep doing that. So if that's like a way to ask this question, just what does it mean to be provided for? What does it mean to, maybe a better way is, what does it mean to have enough? Oh, okay, yeah. So, so I think, again, my perspective is, was changed by our experience with Cam. It's like we, earlier in, in my life, I, I, this is complicated. Sorry, I'm, I'm babbling. I think I have never been a person that's been particularly interested in things, in, in acquisition of things. I don't care about stuff unless it's something that I can use, you know, like a, the earlier example about having a Ferrari, I could care less. I just don't care. So my feeling and my wife's feeling, fortunately, we agree about this, is we don't care about material possessions that much. And right now we're at a point in our lives where we're making enough money that for the very first time in my 60 years, I can consider having a savings account <laughs> because I've never had one. Uh, really quite literally never had one since I was a kid and I would put my Christmas money or whatever in a savings account to pay for 20 seconds of college, you know. <laughs> and I think not having much when I was a kid has made me, ah, this is, has, has made me, has made my perspective about this a little easier because I didn't have a ton of toys. I didn't have a lot of stuff. 
but we still had fun and it was still a great life. So if you've got enough money that you're able to pay your bills and have a place to live that's safe and, you know, at least reasonably comfortable and you have enough money to have food on the table for your family, I think that's as far as we all need to get, need to get, right? And I feel like to go back to this thing that I'm kind of hammering on, I think our culture has sort of a sickness of, of uh, you have to get more stuff and then you die. I mean, I just keep saying that because it's like you could be Jay Leno and have a, a special garage built for your car collection and then he's going to die and then his heirs are going to squabble over the cars and I don't know where this line is and, and I'm kind of like edging towards political nightmare land, but I think you've got a certain amount of money, whatever that is, I think it's probably time to start giving it back to the society that gave you that money. And there are people that are the uber rich, like Bill Gates, frankly, who does that. He puts his money where his mouth is. I mean, his the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is what everybody ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there is no such thing as the Mark Zuckerberg Foundation. There's no such thing as the uh, who's the the Google uh, or the Amazon Jeff Bezos yeah, Foundation. Right. I mean, I think he's basically a parasite, and he's made billions of dollars because of this pandemic. And how, how much money does one guy? I mean, come on! I know this is. I'm going to get like burned at the stake as a socialist, but there's a problem here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, somebody posted a picture on their Instagram or something that said like, you could make $5,000 a day from the time that Columbus discovered America to now. And you would still have, it would be less than a billion dollars. Yeah. And that is still less than Jeff Bezos makes in a week. That's less than he made in the time it said you to say that right, statement yeah. right now. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, I, I've i been thinking a lot about being like what it is to be provided for or what it is. You know, So I do have a savings account, right? I do have – I've been fortunate. I was single and I had a job that allowed me to save. And, and like if financial troubles happen where maybe I can't with my current income pay my bills, well, I do have a savings account, right? And I'm not saying that I should just drain it and call it a day, you know? <laughs> But like <laughs> what I started to realize, and I think you're saying a very similar thing. I started to realize that like if today I can buy food and put it on the table and sleep in a bed, I'm provided for. Like I feel like the anxiety for me comes in, will I be provided for a year from now? What's it going to look like then? And I just am not yeah. guaranteed that. And I know now, but that's like where I feel like I struggle is I feel like a lot of people probably do is like what's going to happen when things run out. But like yeah. all I'm guaranteed promised or promised or whatever is like today, if I'm good to go, like that's all I should try to be worried about is like, what am I going to make for my next dinner? Just like trying to take care of what's right in front of us seems to simplify yeah. the problem. I mean, it's kind of all we can do, honestly, especially now. It's just like, there's no work. There's no, there's no trumpet playing to be done. At least my university, I mean, I'm still getting this paycheck and I'm still teaching my wife is still teaching for now, so we're better off than a whole lot of people. You know, people that work in a restaurant, and that's their whole livelihood, and the restaurant's closed. Yeah. You know, it's just, 
So, I mean, I don't know if you're headed this way, but I've had a lot of thoughts in the last few months about what socialist countries do with a guaranteed annual income where it could free people from the terror that some families are living in that they're not going to be able to feed their kids next week. And and I think it would be, in the long run, I think it would be good for society to at least consider that as a thought. Yeah. I realize that's a really big socialist statement, and that's a little dangerous. I haven't done but enough man, research to have an opinion, you know. But, man, there are a lot of people that day-to-day life is just like the jungle. They're just, like, trying to figure out how to make enough money to feed their kids, and they don't know if they're going to be able to. And, yeah. and God, the, the specter of kids going hungry is just, God, that's a horrible thing. And this is the richest country in the world. It's kind of pathetic that, you know, the guy that started Amazon got lucky and, and, and hit the jackpot, and he's not given billions of dollars to try to help our society be a better place for people to live. Uh, you know, for the bottom five or 10% of, of people to have enough food to get through the day in the richest country in the world. It's, it's a balance problem to me. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying eat the rich. I'm not saying all billionaires should be taken out and strung up. It's just that I, I think they, you know, he didn't make that $5 billion by doing the work himself. Right. You know, yeah. he started, he started a company company like thousands of other people do. And his just happened to hit the jackpot. Sure. Uh, this is dangerous stuff. I, I mean, well, I know he listens to my podcast, so you're in you're in big trouble. <laughs> Jeff, give me some. No, I don't need anybody. I mean, I, but I know people that well. That do, and I think and, that I mean, if we were to take it in a direction, um, it's just like one of the difficult parts is like there's just so many unknowns, and I think that's like really what we're we're all just trying to like rationalize and figure out like. There's a, so much that we just don't understand, and like there's so yeah. many actual problems that people are facing that seem yeah. like they don't get addressed. And I feel like it's like that's where a lot of this comes from. Is like this: we're trying to figure out like, well, what's causing this type of thing? And everyone's got their own opinion. And if there's only one yeah. thing I could say, I've really tried to think about this: is like on either side of the aisle, my assumption to a degree, I know not everybody's going to fit in this box, is that people do want the problems to be addressed. I just think they have very different ways of thinking about what the problem is or how that is best. So trying to focus on that there is a problem and let's have a talk. Nobody can just talk about anything anymore. That's the problem. Right. It's so polarized that you can't have a conversation. Yeah. I think that's, that's... Which is why you're saying what you're saying. It's like you're now going to be labeled as a socialist and you're going to yeah. lose your job and everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, my whole life, every day of my life has been, I just don't worry much about the future. I mean, that obviously changed some when we had kids because you've got other mm-hmm. people to provide right. for. But, I mean, I've always been, despite the fact that I'm kind of cynical about stuff, I've always been at heart because of how I was raised, just kind of quietly optimistic that, you know, something's going to come along. I'll find something to make it work. I mean, my wife and I talked about what happens if she doesn't have a job next year and the university completely crashes. What would I do I've got plans, you know, I could, there's lots of stuff I can do. I've got actual practical skills that don't involve making buzzing sounds into yeah, a piece of right. plumbing. You know, I can paint, I can, I'm an electrician, I could rehab houses. You know, there's just like, I know how to do stuff and that helps because it makes me feel like I could, I wouldn't have to be on a street corner like a lot of people have to be, Yeah. you know. And of course, I'm a white guy, which means I've got some inherent things that give me an advantage over a lot of the population. 
And that also ticks me off, but I can't do much about it at this point. Yeah. Except vote. I mean. Right, right. Well, I don't want to take a whole lot more of your time. It's been a very awesome conversation. I mean, we could pick this up and and, and do another one sometime. Um, we could do a podcast that's just about political stuff, and well, that would be really dangerous. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's not my area of expertise, so I typically – I'm happy to hear any, what anybody has to say, but I typically try to – I don't dip my feet in that very often, but uh, yeah, because it's dangerous. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just I appreciate your openness. I appreciate you being willing to sort of share with all of us uh, some of your experiences, some of your thoughts, what matters to you. For me, it's just I always really enjoy getting to know people a little bit more deeply. But there's definitely for me a lot of just a lot of stuff to chew on in terms of what we should care about in life and what should be our priorities and really what like gives us fulfillment and joy in life. And it seems like you seem to be a, a very joyful person. Uh, and that's, so it's cool. I'm, I'm really thankful that you shared with us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks, th- th- thanks for the opportunity, man. If somebody is like, you know what? I want to know where Keith gets his haircut and they want to get a hold of you. <laughs> Nobody wants to know that. How would somebody get a hold of you to, uh, if they wanted to say anything related to information about studying with you or just like they want to say, I really appreciate the episode, how would they do that? Probably the simplest thing is just my university email. It's just B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-K, last name, first initial, at umkc.edu. That's the simplest way. Cool. Uh, So check that out if you're interested in all things Keith Benjamin. Uh, if you need to get a hold of me, you can uh, <laughs> you can go to that'snotspit.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at that's not spit. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, I'd really appreciate that. Don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it and enjoy the episode as well. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.